Hi, this is Sarah O'Brien, founder of So Tell Your Story, a marketing firm dedicated to guiding simple marketing strategies that can make a big impact for small businesses. In my podcast, Fighting Her Corner, I am exploring real-life stories about the obstacles women overcome and decisions they face when growing their career and family. Join me to hear informative and empowering career journeys from women in all walks of life. Whether staying in her chosen profession or starting a new one after having children, starting her own small business, staying at home with her kids, or deciding to focus on her career and not have children at all, Every woman has a story about the challenges she has met and criticism she faces in her choices as she works on building the life of her dreams. Even though we have made so much progress in recent years, Fighting Her Corner puts a spotlight on how far we have to go for women to feel like they can make the best choices for themselves and their families, while still being celebrated, appreciated, and able to live their best lives. The more we talk about this subject, the more apparent it is that every woman has a story. Today, I'm so excited to introduce our guest, Genevieve Artel, former teacher turned stay-at-home mom, writer of young adult novels, Myers-Briggs profiler, and she's on the track to creating her own business. I am so happy that I get to interview you today because in starting to think about creating this podcast, I always thought of you as someone that I would want to talk to because although you've been like a long time dear friend of mine, in hindsight, I really can only recall like bits and pieces of your journey and your story. So I'm going to learn some things here and there today too and kind of like put stuff together for myself. And I just see you as someone who unapologetically follows your dreams. And I think you've created for your life what many people only dream of. And you've been such a blessing in my life. And I'm really thankful that you decided to let me interview you today for this podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's like the sweetest thing ever. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Sorry, I totally threw you off. No, this is great. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for including me in this journey of your own. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about how you started with your career and that journey. Yeah, sure. So I wasn't sure what I was going to go into when I entered college. Actually, I was thinking about pre-law, environmental science being kind of the focus, but um, I kind of knew that wasn't exactly the best fit for me because I knew someday I wanted to have a family and I speculated out into the future and saw that that would probably be really hard to juggle a family with that kind of career plus being the kind of mom I was hoping to be someday. So then I did some soul searching, I guess, and kind of did the opposite of what you were just telling me that I did, which was I didn't exactly follow my heart. Mm. Like I didn't exactly ignore it all the way but I ended up choosing education and that was an okay fit in some ways because I like children and I love learning and I like that feeling of making a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. So that's kind of the path I decided on as a young adult 
And um, so I was an elementary, middle education teacher. Uh, and then I got my master's in library science and I did teach in the classroom for five years as a third grade teacher. And then I was a librarian um, in elementary school as well for three years. So that was kind of the beginning or the first stage of my professional goals in the first kind of season of that kind of, that kind of journey of mine. I love how you started off kind of like with this logical approach of finding your career and then turned into like really following your heart. So to kind of weave that story together, you, you were in college and actually you met the love of your life in high school and you guys both went to the same college. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and um, what it was yeah. like, sort of like deciding to start a family and, and be a teacher at the same time too? Yeah, sure. My husband and I, like you said, we, we actually met in middle school. Uh, my first memory of him is in seventh grade and we were in the same seventh grade homeroom and I remember flirting with him in line as we went to go get our pictures taken. So it was picture day. So fast forward to high school and we were both, I guess, interested in each other, but I was super, super shy. Maybe you remember that. And <laughs> it took a while for us to actually start dating because of some issues that I had with actually speaking to people I liked. And so, but we did eventually finally get to begin to date. And by the way, I knew I was going to marry him before I even started dating him. I and remember that. Yeah, I remember the moment between us two. You were on my bed in my room and you just popped your head up. You're like, you guys are going to get married. And oh, I'm that's like, right. I should clarify for I should clarify that you and I are high school best friends. So that's we go way yeah. back. So anyway, my husband and I ended up going to college together, which was not planned to be together because we were together. We both had made that decision on our own first. And then, yeah, we, we dated for five years, got married. And by the time we kind of wanted to start a family, uh, we had been together maybe seven years. But um, and before and during that time period, I had been diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer, which um, if you're familiar with the different skin cancers, that is the type that can spread to different parts of your body and is, um, can be very deadly if you don't catch it early. Um, thankfully, I did catch it early, but because of the way melanoma works um, in relation to hormones, um, when I had wanted to conceive, um, I was basically told by my doctors not to because my chances of melanoma coming back for anyone, or not anyone, for anyone, melanoma can increase with pregnancy. But when you have a history of melanoma or it's in remission, it's like, it's just kind of a no-no. So um, I had to wait two years and that was really, really hard, but it ended up being a blessing disguise because Adam and I took our second honeymoon to Europe during that time while we waited. So it all worked out. So you had your first daughter, Ella, mm -hmm. and you were still teaching. I was still teaching. So can you talk a little bit about maternity leave and what that was like for you and how you felt about maybe going back to work? It, it was different for me where I didn't have to take my maternity leave, quote unquote, right away because I had her three days after school ended. So I had all summer with her. And that was a hard time in my life. Um, she was a colicky baby. I suffered from postpartum depression. 
didn't really realize it at the time. So when I actually took my paternity leave, it was two weeks after school started that following fall. So I started the class for with two weeks, I think it was, because I kind of wanted to be there to set up the routines and expectations. Then I had a long-term sub come in for a month or so. And that's when I took my maternity leave. And that was amazing because she was kind of past the colicky stage and I was really able to enjoy her at that point. But then by the time I got back from maternity leave, I did not want to return. So that began the that time in my life where I was really unhappy. And that lasted for four years. So, oh, wow. Because I didn't end up uh, staying home until Ella was four and my second born was two. So oh. that, was, that was a hard time. Yeah. So can you talk about that, like what it was like going back to work, why you were unhappy, and basically what it was like to be a teacher and a mom? I was thinking about this and just the, just the other day, and it was kind of like when you're in high school, let's we'll compare it to high school because everything seems to be very dramatic in high school, right? Like all your emotions are so fresh. And when you're like dealing with um, romantic relationships in high school, like every like argument is like an explosion of your heart, right? And breaking up with someone that you love is like the most painful experience ever. But that was kind of what it was like during those four years for me with my children. So it was like every time I dropped them off at daycare, it was like my heart was in that pain of loss and regret. And there was guilt, huge amounts of guilt as well. And so it was like every day was like this painful, traumatic experience for myself, my children, or at least that's how I perceived it. And then, you know, the day is really busy as a teacher. So I, I wouldn't say I like was constantly thinking about it while I was at work because I'm so busy thinking about those other 20 some kids in your classroom and everything you have to get done. But then as soon as the day ended, it was like this panic attack would kind of rise up inside me. Like, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta get my kids. I gotta do this, I gotta do that. Like I need to be physically by them. And um, so then it was like this uh, really strange pressure inside me. That it was like I, and then it would just kind of, as soon as I got to reunite with my children, it was like, I just, it all dissipated again. And I was back to kind of like this homeostasis, this balance of where I wanted to be, which was with my children. And this isn't to say that I didn't love the students that I had or that I didn't enjoy my coworkers or the idea of, you know, like I said, like being an educator and, and teaching things and making a positive difference in different people's lives. But when it just came down to it, I wanted just to be with my kids. And do you think the postpartum depression played a role in that at all? Or do you just think that that's how you're wired? Like you... You just wanted to be with your kids and it wasn't meant for you to, to be outside the home working. Yeah, I would say it was more related to my wiring because I think the postpartum actually did the opposite. I think I wanted a break 
from being a mommy with postpartum yeah um in that moment like I remember holding Ella and she was crying and I had postpartum and I I remember this moment I used to, <laughs> and I was so um physically ill afterwards because of an autoimmune disease I have and then the fact that I had like a really crazy delivery and emergency c-section so like I was physically unwell really unwell and then she was colicky and then I had postpartum and I remember like putting her in um, the stroller inside my house and walking around and around and around my dining room table and being like why did I do this this will never end. And it was like this really strange, like twilight zone moment where you don't even feel like this is your life or like, I don't even know how to explain it. <laughs> like, it's just, I'll have to reflect on this more. It's, it was really weird and hard and painful. And so I think at that point I would have been like glad to give it up almost, which is really strange for me to even think now because here I want I've always wanted to be with them but when you're in that postpartum stage it it's you're not well you're not thinking clearly right you're not you're not yourself right so all your chemicals are off so yeah I, I would say that is when when I'm in my most healthy like um, self version I want to be with my family even more that's interesting so my family is I don't want to escape from my family when I'm in my best version yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that so many women deal with some version of postpartum depression or whatever you want to call it. And mm -hmm. I did myself. Mm -hmm. And, but when you're in the middle of it, it's like, you don't really recognize that that's mm -hmm. what's happening. It's definitely like in hindsight for me too. Right. Okay. So you stayed a teacher until after your second was born. So you had mm -hmm. your second child two years later, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have postpartum with him actually, which was interesting. But by the time he was born in part, part, you know, partly because I had already gone through the process with Ella. Now I kind of knew what to expect. I knew how hard it was going to be, especially like pumping <laughs> at work. Right. And even doing that whole dance by the time he was born, it was like, no doubt in my mind, I wanted to be home, but we couldn't make it work financially at the time. So I've heard this from teachers before, and I was in shock that mm -hmm. the pumping situation is very <laughs> tricky at schools. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> or expressing breast milk, however you do it. What is that like? I've heard people are in like <laughs> closets and you can only go. Uh-huh like every during certain breaks like what is it like yeah <laughs> so for me I had sometimes I had a pump in this bathroom just the staff bathroom which when you think about is pretty gross but like that that was the only guaranteed place for privacy oh my um, and I can say that for sure because I was in my my own classroom, which, you know, I was afforded the luxury, I guess, of having my own like classroom and I didn't share it with anyone. And so like baby during lunch, I'd, um, I'd lock the door. I had like a shade that I put up and then in front of me where I would pump, I even like put up like a, like a big, like chart paper kind of a thing. So there was like a blockade in front of me, plus my door is locked. Plus I have a shade up. Right. And by the way, because it's, the way it was, I had to even get permission from my principal and be like, 
just so you know, I have to put up a shade. And when the shade is up, that means it's kind of a privacy thing with kids, which I get, like you want to be able to look into a classroom and like see what's going on. But at least twice I was walked in. And it was like someone like actually took the key, opened it up. And then both times they were men. (laughs) No. Uh Uh-huh. Once was my principal and once was, I think, the janitor. Oh my God. And I don't know if the, I think, and I was kind of like, um, I'm in here. Like, <laughs> like starting right. panic, right? And actually when the principal came in, like as soon as he kind of figured out what was going on, he just like freaked out, right? And like, that was the last time I think either of them made that, <laughs> made that mistake. But you just have that chance where like someone's going to walk in and it's just super uncomfortable and rushed, like it's hard enough just pumping, right? Like some people produce a lot and that's like not a big deal, but I was not one of those lucky women. Like I had to pump all the time, all day long to get anything. And it was just, I don't know. So like just try to even produce, right? When you're stressed, you're going to produce even less. So yeah, I was just going to say that when you needed to be relaxed, you were worried about right. what was going to happen. Yeah. Or with like time management as a teacher, like there's just so much work and like you really have all this work after school too. So like I would try to do every, like I would either be checking email at the same time or correcting at the same time. Like it was like, I'm pumping and correcting. (laughs) I mean, like not exactly the most, not, not the most, uh, fun thing yeah you know and I hear so many stories about people going into the teaching profession because of the the flexibility and to be you know with their kids when they want to be with their kids but from what it sounds like a lot of them work just as much as somebody you know in a full-time capacity if not a lot more so do you have any thoughts about that yeah teaching is um you're right it's flexible in the sense that you're not going to be working weekends on site and you're not going to be working the summer months on site but you are spending hours at home on the weekends and you are spending hours each week at home over the summer so yeah it's 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 definitely not a 40 hour job it's and I guess different teachers you know put in different amounts you know based on where they are in their experience and even, you know, how much they put towards new projects and such. But I would say almost every teacher I know probably puts in 50, 60 plus hours a week. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think people know that before they get into the profession? I didn't. No. Well, maybe I did. I don't know because my mom's a teacher, right? And so I saw her correcting but not a ton because she'd correct at night in her bed. Mm. And like, I, you know, you just don't process that as a kid sometimes, like how much work they're doing when right. you're asleep or gone. And So you had your second child, Ethan, and then you did go back to work after that, mm-hmm. after he was born, right? Yeah. I For did. how long? Two years. Yeah. Oh, really? I did. It's so yeah. funny how much I forget about that. <laughs> And we and by then we had put up our house for sale because we thought, okay, if we sell our house, we can downgrade and then we can have me stay at home, right? So part of it was it just wasn't feasible with what we were it wouldn't have been feasible at the time with our mortgage. And um but the recession had hit 
right after we'd purchased our house. So because the value of our house like dropped so significantly, we just we couldn't sell it and not like go into crazy debt, even more debt, right? So, um, so yeah, I kept working and just praying and hoping. And by then, I was also writing, I was a secret closeted writer. So I had this dream that I would just finish a book and I would get it sold. And then that would be my way out of teaching. So then I could be a part-time writer and a part-time mom at least, or mostly a full-time mom with who's just kind of squeezing and writing time, right? And so that kind of became my new goal, my secret goal and my secret love affair at the time was my writing. And how did you find time to write while you were teaching and had two children? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what it ended up being. I didn't sleep, honestly. So I, it was really bizarre, but the way it all kind of began because yeah, Ella, when I started writing, Ella was six months old and I was actually getting my master's part-time as well. And I don't know. I think I, I had denied my creativity for so long that it was like this rising expression that can no longer be bottled inside me. And once I started writing that first novel, it was like a very um, euphoric experience. And actually, it was actually a very high experience the first time I did it because I got like, um, like a runner's high. Like every time I would write during that first year, I got a runner's high doing it. So it was like this, I don't know what you would call it. It was just... Um, it was something I couldn't deny by that point. I think it was just kind of like, it just was coming out of me and I couldn't suppress it any longer. Oh, that's so cool. In my mind, from what I remembered, I thought you first became a stay-at-home mom and then started writing. And even then I was like, how did she have time mm -hmm. to do that? But what I love about what you just said is, I mean, you just had to do it. It was like something that was part of you and mm -hmm. you needed to find a way. And what I love about your story is that you were brave enough to do it. Thank you. Before we get into the next part, which is you actually deciding to be a stay-at-home mom, I wanted to tell you about a memory I have of, mm. well, first of all, for the listeners, you live in our hometown. Mm -hmm. And so I go back and visit. And I actually remember, <laughs> I remember visiting and I, I don't remember what year it was, but um, I think I was at a very different time in my life. I don't mm -hmm. remember. I think I was married, but I didn't have kids. And so I was like working on my career and I will always remember you coming to my door and you were just the most excited I've ever seen you in your entire life. <laughs> and you gave me this big hug and you were like, I get to be a stay at home mom. Aww. And I couldn't relate at the time necessarily, but I was so happy for you because I could just tell that you were so happy. <laughs> like, awesome. I, I don't even remember, remember this moment. No. no. Oh my gosh. I, I remember just I being like, I'm thrilled for you. But, you know, even though it was so different right. from my life at the time, but I remember being so excited for you. So can you share how you and your husband were able to allow you to become a stay-at-home mom and like what that decision process looked like? Right obviously have been on our, our radar as a possibility for some time since we had tried selling our house. 
there were two big things that happened that allowed that to, allowed for me to um, the privilege of being able to follow that um, that dream. And the first was my husband took a part management position, and it it bumped his salary up just enough that if we cut out everything that was a want and not a need in our life, we could make it work. And that's what we did. So there were two choices. First, my husband had to take a more demanding job, a more stressful um, and time intensive job. Um, and then the second one was that we, yeah, we had to live very frugally. And what we did was the envelope method where when Adam would get paid, we would go to the bank, we would take out a certain amount of cash, and then we put a designated amount of money for our budget in each envelope. And I paid, we paid everything in cash. There was no credit card. I mean, we had a credit card and I'm sure we used it for some automatic stuff. It was, it was that type of living and minimalism that really allowed us to do it. And it was hard. You know, sometimes it was really hard. Adam was just telling me the other day when he had a moment we were, we were shopping for our weekly supplies and we didn't have enough money in our envelope to buy paper toweling. And, you know, we maybe got the diapers or something, right? But we didn't have the money for the paper toweling. And that was a really, he said, humbling moment for him, especially since, you know, he was working so hard and he's a very educated man as well. And, you know, and he makes good money, but the fact remained that it wasn't enough to really have even the comfort of paper towels sometimes. So yeah. it was hard, you know, there was no cable, there was never going out to eat. I mean, I don't think we went out to eat during those first two years, maybe once every six months, maybe. And date nights, not a thing. If it was, my parents watched and we did something really cheap, right, on the fly. And for me, I think it was easier on me because, like, I had something different in my life and I was, like, seeing it every day and it was very tangible, like, reward in that sense. And my husband, things didn't, I mean, things that maybe changed a little bit for him where I was doing more responsibilities, making the food and doing stuff from the house, but it probably wasn't a huge difference for him, if that makes sense. Because it wasn't like he was gaining time with the kids. If anything, he was losing time with the kids because he was working longer hours. Right. So that's how that kind of worked. And um, it was tough. It was a, a tough couple of years. And, you know, it, there were a lot of times where we had friends that would invite us out to do stuff and we'd have to pass gracefully and hopefully, you know, kind of say face and not explain that. It was because we just literally did not have the money to do it. Did you feel like you went through a tough time in your relationship with each other, or do you think it brought you closer together? I wouldn't say it put a strain on our relationship, but I would say I would say Adam was not happy in some ways, um, and he's not a complainer, and you know he's always been so supportive of me and our family, but I think it was just hard on him in a lot of ways. And in a way, it actually brought us closer, though, because then we had to actually talk about our money and, like, have those discussions, like, what is important to us. And it's funny how much further your money can stretch when you're really conscientious about it. And we also learned 
it's okay to not have everything you want to. I think, I think there was something that we went through too. Like, I think it, it gave us empathy for people that struggle financially. I think it put things into perspective, wants versus needs. And also, I think we're also very aware of first world privileges. And I think we both want our children never to take for granted all of the opportunities and privileges they're receiving now and will later in life. And so I think it's carried over, even though our wiggle room's a little bit bigger now and we're no longer doing the envelope system. I think our parenting and what we provide to our children is still reflective of that really hard stage we started with our children. We went through something where we had to kind of cut down on needs versus wants or think about that a little harder. And it was very therapeutic in a way that I really didn't expect and I can't even really describe. And I don't think anybody wants to say like, oh, I wish I had less money so that I would go through this like, right. therapeutic time Not in my life. Not really that romantic, right? <laughs> but it definitely, there was a good feeling associated with it when it was like, you know, you, you can say no to things and it, it mm-hmm. just feels like simplifying your life is, is good and to a point, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, now you're a stay-at-home mom. And did you start writing a lot more? And when did you write? So when I first started writing, Ella was a baby. And so I wrote during her naps. And she would take, you know, good chunk naps. And so that's when I first started. But then by the time Ethan was born, and I was, you know, working, finishing my master's, right, there was no nap time because my daughter wasn't really much of a napper or, you know, when he was up, she was maybe resting, but you know, you always had a, you were always with some kid doing something. Right. And I only had two. So (laughs) I can't imagine I'm three or four plus. So what ended up happening was I would write at night after everyone would go to sleep, including my husband. And that would be, you know, 10 PM to midnight or 1 PM. And then you need to wake up at five 30 the next day. And wow. And if you if you know me, you know that I am like a sleep junkie. <laughs> and I love sleep. I love sleep. It's it's one of my indulgences that I give myself when I can. And at the time that just wasn't my reality. And maybe, you know, having kids, I kind of got used to not sleeping all the time. But I can also say though that at that time I was getting sicker and sicker with some crazy food intolerances and some a new autoimmune disease. So in retrospect, that wasn't the best thing for my body. I I think I I really I think I really hurt myself in the long run. And I think I'm still recovering from it, to be honest, from the lack of sleep. I really believe sleep's really important for you and your health. So um I, I so yeah, I wrote at night and after Evan was asleep because the way that I'm wired is I need complete distraction-free environment, which means everyone has to be like out, unconscious. (laughs) I can be the only conscious one. Wow. It's like when 10 o'clock rolls around in my life and I just hit the pillow. Mm -hmm. How long did you do that? Gosh, I don't know. I, I guess I did it until I either got really sick or... See, now I can't really quite remember. I can tell you that I didn't get to probably writing during the day until Ethan began kindergarten. Oh, okay. Or pre-K, 4K. 
you know, and then it was such small chunks. It was like an hour during the day because when you kind of added in the, the driving time and, and pick up, drop off, it was like an hour. So obviously not enough to really get a good chunk of writing in. But I took, you know, I took what I could. And, and then obviously if the ability to write during the day is now just like a dream come true when I am home and able to do that. I think in all things in life, when we make a big decision and a big change, there are people in our lives that are like so supportive and it's such an amazing experience and like brings you together, closer mm-hmm. together with certain friendships or family members. Did you experience, how, do, how was that for you when you made this big choice? Like, did you experience people being confused or, mm-hmm. you know, supportive or mm-hmm. what was that like for you when you made that jump to say like I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom and then also I'm writing <laughs> at 10 o'clock <laughs> at night right yeah that's that's a really big question because part of who I am is intuitively knowing what people are thinking and feeling for better or for worse I'm actually getting nervous right now talking I haven't been nervous until right now wow it, it was, it's hard because I had mentioned I was closeted. I was a closeted writer. And the whole reason for that was because I knew there was probably going to be some judgment about it. I knew that I also wanted to feel like a success when I did come out and like I had the right to write. And when I did come out, I wasn't agented. I wasn't published. And I still didn't feel like I had the right to write, but entirely, I don't know if I'm actually explaining this correctly, but I don't, I don't know. I just did it. And yeah, the, the, it was mixed. I had some people that were really supportive, like you, like I remember telling you and you were so excited. And I was like, oh, I needed this. I needed this so much. Right. You're like, I believe in you. I know it's going to happen. I'm just so excited. You're following your dream. Like that was like exactly what I needed to hear. Right. Because you already have self doubt, you know, just dealing with your own ego and what you know, you need to work on and will this ever happen. Right. All those things that constantly question you constantly question, but, but I had, you know, people that kind of, they would find out and I think what was most telling was they didn't say anything. Really? They just kind of looked at me and they'd go, oh. And there was so much in that oh. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I also think there's also some telling and whether or not people, and maybe it's just how people are and they don't want to feel nosy and I am a kind of a private person in a way well not in a way (laughs) I am so I'm not one of those people that normally talks about herself unless someone directly asks me a question and so I'm not probably going to be talking about my writing unless you ask me about it that you show interest right because I don't I don't want to bother you with things right (laughs) and so there was just a lot of people that never asked me about it and they still don't ask me about it. And, and that's okay. Maybe they just don't know what to ask or, you know, maybe it has nothing to do with whether or not they think it's a great idea or they believe in me or anything around that. But I don't know. There is something about people just showing interest in what they know you love. And maybe that's me 
being me and knowing that that's how I communicate with others is I, I ask a lot of questions and I'm really interested in what people love and are passionate about and their dreams. And I, I have to remember sometimes that not everyone is wired that way, you know? So. Yeah. And we'll learn more about how you are learning about that more and more (laughs) (laughs) at this phase in your life. But did you let it get to you more than you wish you would have, or do you wish you would have handled it differently when people didn't react the way that you were hoping? I don't think so. I think I, I'm fine with how it all went. I don't know how else I would have responded, you know, like I still would never want to push my, I don't know, thoughts on people or like talk about something they're not interested in. Like that's not something I would ever want to do. And I don't know. I, no, I think I would have handled it the same way. You look back on some things and you're like, that made me really sad and made me doubt sometimes, but I still, it still made me stronger, right? Because you're never going to have everyone believe in you and you're always going to have critics. And you also have to remember that I think going forward too, like you just have to follow what you love and not care what other people think. Oh, that just gave me chills. Okay, good. <laughs> I didn't mean to give you chills, but I do believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say to somebody that's looking to take a jump, that's just part of the game. Like that's what you're going to have to deal with and screw it. Yeah. You, no one, you have to be your biggest fan. And I, like, I feel like that's a cliche, but you have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, other people aren't probably going to believe in you. And there are just going to be times in your life, winters that seem like they're never going to end. And you still have to have that seed of germination that you know is planted and just know that spring is coming and it's going to happen. I love it. So many like good truth bombs in this. Oh, Um, truth bombs. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Let's get to present day. You now have written how many novels? So that's kind of hard to answer. I can tell you I've probably written like eight complete new first drafts, but when it comes down to an actual like novel that kind of is its own idea I would say I've written four different novels if that makes sense yes I'll take that answer okay (laughs) (laughs) it's been like eight years since you started writing is that right well it's I it's 10 it's going on 10 wow in um November. Wow. 10 years. And so you're writing novels and then you've, you're also starting to take on other interests or career moves recently, right? Yeah. Can you talk about those? Sure. So I had been part a, of a writing competition online called Pitch Wars and I had been selected as one of the finalists and the, all the finalists had, um, we were part of this like private Facebook group and we just like shared our, our highs and lows as we kind of went through this process, this competition. And some people ended up, um, 
like making it at the end. Like they got a book deal, agent book deal, just awesome stuff, right? I mean, that was everyone's hope. And people like me, that didn't happen, but it was still a great experience. But one of the things that kind of changed the course of my life was during this Facebook group discussion, someone posted this thread where he or she said, hey, take this quiz because turns out most, most of us writers are INFPs or INFJs. See what you are. So I, you know, click it, take the test. And I come Which is a personality type. The personality test yeah. and specifically the Myers-Briggs personality test. So um, I get results for INFP and I read the description and it was like an awakening. <laughs> it was a really huge moment for me because the description of the INFP was someone who's introverted, someone who's intuitive, someone who's a feeler. And then when you like put all those together, like you get this idealistic person who's sensitive and can be a little standoffish, but still has like dreams and passions. And they end up being like these fantastic world creators and they're often writers and artists. So when I saw this um, description, I finally had this epiphany where I realized I wasn't broken because my whole life I had felt broken and strange and odd and hidden because I had hidden many, many versions of myself from mm -hmm. the general public and from most people, even those really, really close to me. And so then I started kind of digging into what Myers-Briggs um, typology is and then discovering that it was much more than these generalized stereotype descriptions of personalities and that there are cognitive functions that are kind of at work in everyone's brain and how they basically become puzzle pieced inside you and how they affect you. And I, the more I dug, the deeper I got, the more into I got I got into it like obsessed I guess you could say and then I found this really great podcast called personality hacker and it's run by a couple Antonia and Joel and they provide these amazing free podcasts on personalities and other things as well but the more I listen to them and learn from them the more I realized there were a lot of things about me that I had never considered or explored and also things about me that weren't always like something on my conscious that were unique to me. And so I eventually decided that I wanted to become profile, like I become like a certified profiler of this system because it kind of changed how I saw the world and myself and relationships and it explained a lot of things about me that I needed explaining almost to to get to the next stage of who I am the next best version of myself oh, and wow. so yeah so this since January I've been knee deep in this certification course through personality hacker through Joel and Antonia's um, class and learning so much profiling now on my own 
getting practice and figuring out where I want to take this new knowledge and um, expertise going forward. And I'm thinking it's going to be used with creatives and writers in particular, helping them understand themselves as a writer and then helping them understand their characters that they write about. So. Oh, that's how it all ties together. How it all ties together. I did not know that. That's so cool. Yeah. And I also know I told you this recently, but one of the things that I love about you is that when you're talking about something that you get excited about, it's just so transparent. And (laughs) when you were talking about, even before you told me about like getting certified, I remember thinking like, wow, she really is excited about this and passionate about it and very fitting for your life theme (laughs) that you would (laughs) go down the road that you're passionate about and make something of it. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Thank you. I'm excited too. And I just want to say to the listeners, um, I am not an INFP. (laughs) I thought I was an INFP for like two plus years. And I was like, really good on that. And then I found out I was not, I was an INFJ. And that kind of like shook my life like big time like I had a existential crisis (laughs) which my husband thought was like the weirdest thing in the world but he knew it was like for real he's like I don't know why this is like troubling to you (laughs) he goes but I can tell it's like really affecting you have you solved that yeah I I, yeah I'm feeling really good with my my best fit type INFJ and actually so much better to be INFJ or no, I'm INFJ than INFP because there's so much more growth opportunities being identified as my true fit. Okay. So what advice would you have for someone who went through or is going through a similar situation? Well, I think the first thing is being in a relationship if you are in a relationship like you know if you have a family and all that and you have a significant other that you have that open communication between um, each other and just kind of you know sharing what you hope and dream first and then getting being each other's like support system so I know I could never have followed my dreams without my husband like he was my financial supporter he has and is an emotional support for me. That is just critical. And if you don't have that, like I, I think out of everyone, like that would be really hard to, to, you know, tell your spouse, like, I, I want to do this so bad. And you don't have that support from your spouse either because they don't understand it or they think it's a waste of time or, you know, whatever it is. But um, I guess really working on your relationship first, because it's going to, probably getting tested in some ways and if you go through hard times like financially or anything like that you need to kind of be both on board right through the long the long haul so that's the first thing and then I guess the second thing is really to understand that you're going to be making sacrifices to get to the place you want to eventually be and maybe that's financial a lot of time it's time, right? Like you have to make, you have to say no to things because you, you have to dedicate it to what you really want to do. And then reaching out to others would be my third thing. Like I said, like finding that community of like-minded people who kind of share your interest and passion because it's so important. 
and it'll just take you to the next level so much quickly or quicker. And then the last thing is to like actually believe in yourself, right? To just do it, right? I mean, you just have, I mean, it's scary. It's, it is scary. And every day can be scary. Like I need to do this. And there's like this little small part of you. It's like, you can't do this. This is a waste of your time. It's never going to happen. But you just have to like push that, that voice aside and just do it. And that the best way to, to shut it up is to just do it. Ooh, because then you've that. proven that you can do it, right? That they're right. wrong. You're right. But it's, but at least I can say, even if I never have a bestseller and even if no, you know, I don't leave a legacy in that way, I can at least at the end of the day, whether I die young or if I die, you know, 102, you know, surrounded by grandkids and great grandkids, like at least I can say I don't have regrets. Right. And like, I followed my, my soul's purpose and yeah. I went after like truth and beauty and my soul's calling. So what, what, what more is there, right? And, mm-hmm. and honestly, the legacy that's most important is the legacy you live with, leave with your family. At least exactly. that's, my, that's my opinion. Uh, one yeah. more question is, because this podcast, I really want to explore what different industries can do to support working parents more and you kind of touched on what it was like for you when you went back to teaching uh, with pumping and stuff like that. What do you mm-hmm. think the educational system could do more to support working parents? Working teachers and staff members of the education system? Yes. Would you say? Yeah. I think the biggest thing would be the opportunity to job share. There's very little opportunity to do that. In fact, it used to be more... Um, from what I understand, more common to have job share positions for teachers, and then they just kind of nixed it. And it's like, as soon as those job share people got out of it, they never allowed it to be replaced. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. I, I mean, if I could have taught, you know, and shared a classroom, who knows, my life and my story might be very different, right? And for what does that mean exactly, job share for a teacher? So that means like instead of teaching, like if I, like for a classroom teacher, instead of teaching five days of the week, you maybe t- teach three days of the week or two days of the week or half day every day. It, it depends on like the, the two coworkers and what they kind of decide and what obviously the principal and school district's um, okay with. But it, it's it's just it's that opportunity to not be a full-time employee and, and be able to be a part-time parent during the day when your kids aren't asleep. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. That'd be a really big, a really big deal. I didn't, yeah. I had no idea that they didn't do that anymore. And it seemed like when they were doing it, teachers had to really ask for it. Like it Mm -hmm. wasn't like just something that you could sign up for. You had to like advocate for yourself. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I realized that I scripted, not scripted, but I had like this whole conversation sort of outlined with what I wanted to say until the very end. So it's crazy how people in your life that you've known for years and you talk to on a regular basis, like how much you can learn from just asking questions like this. I'm just like so grateful that I had the opportunity to like just sit down and ask you all these things that apparently I didn't even know a lot of them. So well, thanks uh, for asking me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm not going to share otherwise. <laughs> right now, I know that. 
So anyway, thank you so much for, for being on this podcast and I hope to see you You're soon welcome. and give you a big hug. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you for joining me for Fighting Her Corner. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and review in your app. Please let me know what types of stories you want to hear or if you have an interesting story you'd like to share.